Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Amen. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We've been walking through this story. We've now entered the passion narrative leading up to the moments where Jesus would be betrayed and then crucified. We're going to talk about that for just a moment today. Luke chapter 22, I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll dive into the text. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captain of the temple guard, to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Today, I want to just talk on a few minutes on the topic of a faithful friend and suffering servant. A faithful friend and a suffering servant. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I am in desperate need of your provision in this moment. God, all that matters is people hear clearly your word and are given prompts to obey. So, God, would you use my mind now? Would you use my mouth? What I speak, thus saith you, no more and no less. God, I pray for compassion, for courage, for clarity. God, help me in this moment to be an ambassador and a herald, that let me decrease so that you may increase, Father. And may we all hear what you're saying to us and respond in obedience because you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy, Father. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You just don't understand. Famous words, um, especially for children raised by parents. I don't know about you, but did anybody's parents were the strict parents in the group? Like all your friends seem to have cool parents, but your parents were the problem. Anybody grew up like that? Amen. Amen. Um, I remember my parents seemed to just be making up rules for life. Things that didn't even make sense. You can't have a girlfriend until this age. You got to be inside by this time. By the lights come out, you got to do this thing first and over this. And so I felt like, man, like, y'all just don't understand. All my friends get to to stay out. All my friends get to do these other things. And you just are trying to ruin my life with all your rules and regulations. You just don't understand. And even as children that grow up, we still have that refrain in our minds, don't we? You just don't understand. Has anyone ever been given really good advice by a a really dear friend? And maybe we didn't say it, but at least we thought it. You just don't understand. And I know this good advice would apply to anyone else in any other situation, but not to me. Because you just don't understand. This is some unique suffering that I'm going through, a unique circumstances that I'm living. And so you just don't understand. And I was grateful for those rules later in life, but in that moment growing up, even in my father's house, my, my dad had weird rules. Um, I remember 
Um, we would do little things, little things. Like we have to wash dishes in a certain order. I'm, yeah, come on now. We had to wash things in a certain order. And if we didn't do those things in that order, like pots and pans last and, you know, glasses first. And did, y'all, come, some of y'all know because don't put that glass in that greasy sink. And so we had to do these things. And when we didn't do these things, we would get in trouble. And I remember having to explain to my friends that I couldn't come outside because I washed dishes in the wrong order. That's a humbling moment, y'all. But as I grew older, he used to, my dad used to always say, it's not the thing that you did, it's the fact that I told you. So it's not that the fact that you washed this in the wrong order, it's the fact that you were disobedient to me. So the rule doesn't matter. The rule that I broke doesn't matter. The fact that you disobeyed at all is why you're getting punished. And I didn't understand that then. But I remember on my 25th birthday, I was living in Philadelphia. Um, some of you know my, my story before I was in ministry. I was in the corporate world and had achieved a, a level of success for my age. That was really astounding, and I was grateful for it. Uh, but on my 25th birthday, I don't know, it was about something happened in my heart and life where I began to look back on how I was raised. And although it's, it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, I began to feel a sense of gratitude. And I remember calling my dad on my 25th birthday and just telling him words that I don't think I'd ever really said growing up. Thank you. Thank you. Because I looked at some of my friends who had the cool parents, and I looked how their lives had turned out. And it wasn't competition. It's not just by works. It is sometimes luck of the draw. But I saw a pattern emerge between the parents who heavily invested, between the parents who had the, the hard rules. There was a pattern that emerged when those children grew up, wasn't there not? Some of you are in this room right now because your parents were hard on you. Some of your lives were spared from circumstances that your friends and family went through that you didn't go through because although you felt that they didn't understand, maybe they did. Maybe those parents, those grandparents, those uncles and aunties really did understand, and they were trying to protect us for some things that we couldn't see. It's funny how life gives us a little bit of perspective. In today's passage, hopefully our perspective will shift as well, because we're going to see in this passage what what faithfulness looks like, and not just faithfulness as in obedience, as in we are keeping the law. But what does Christ's faithfulness to us look like? Does he understand? It begins with a common thing. We call it communion, but it's the Passover meal, Um, the Last Supper, as it's called. Jesus is gathering with his disciples, and it's interesting because he knows he's about to die. What does he do on these last few hours on earth? The first one is he celebrates the Passover meal with his friends. Verse 14, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table, and Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he began to say words that are familiar for those growing up in church. This is my blood, which is shed for you. This is my body given for you, poured out as a sacrifice for you. But look at verse 21. As he is celebrating this Passover meal, he makes an observation. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? And the disciples begin to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Family, we have oftentimes connected the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the beginning of his suffering for the sins of the world. I'm going to present to you today that his suffering began long before that. 
You see, he had spent the last three years of his life eating and sleeping, fellowshipping, drinking, and teaching, and modeling, and loving, and even washing the feet of the men in this room. And yet we're going to see that one by one, they're all going to turn their back on him. Although we know Judas's name, he gets a bad rap, rightfully so, but not one before this night is over will remain by Jesus' side. Jesus told them in verse 25, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Jesus' last moments, what is he doing? He's calling them even closer. He's not just teaching them. He's saying out loud that which he himself is doing, that I am the Messiah. I am the King of Kings. Jesus knows exactly who he is, and yet he's putting himself in the posture of a suffering servant. He doesn't lord his power over us as a model for us to not do the same in this world. Judas would betray him, but that's not all. Verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, now he calls him Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you, even to die with you. This is one of the most interesting exchanges for me in all of this passage. Because Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are going to betray me. You are going to deny me. But look at the word of love that he gives to him. He says, Peter, don't don't stay there. After you deny me, after you walk away from me, come back. Come back and strengthen your brothers. Family, just, just as an aside, this is really about Jesus and his suffering, but let me just say this to us. One of the worst parts of sin isn't often the sin itself, but the shame that comes riding along with it. Sometimes in our inadequacy, we do what humans do. We do what Christians do. We fall, we sin, we stumble. And that is natural because we are yet being made perfect by the power of the Spirit working in us. What Jesus is saying to Peter, and I believe through the power of the Word saying to us, is when you fall, don't stay down. When you mess up, don't stay there. Turn to me again. Turn to me again. I believe there are some even in this room right now who maybe there was a season in your life where you have felt the power of God at work, where you were on fire, but you have just been in a season of falling. You have stumbled and fumbled your way. Some of your friends would be even surprised to know that you're a Christian. Because now it's been just more than an incident. It's now been a pattern, and you are wondering if you could ever get up again. Let me just repeat to you what the Lord has said in his word. Turn to Jesus again. 
men. So much of our identity is wrapped up in our performance and our title and our ability to provide and our ability to lead and our ability to have all the answers, to be the biggest, baddest, strongest man in the room. And there has been a season recently, I know, because this is the world we live in, where you have not measured up to that and you have fumbled. You have been harsh when you should have been compassionate. You have come up short when you were expected to deliver. Brothers, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Turn to Jesus again. Believers in general, this is a word that we need to hear. Turn to me again and strengthen your brothers. Peter is saying, being told by Jesus, that look, the people of God need you. We need you. Come back, repent, and get back in the role that I have assigned to you because the promise that I provided for your life is not revocable by your sin. The things that the Lord has declared to be true of you, you can't cancel because of your disobedience. All you can do is delay it. So when you fall and stumble, brother and sister, it's okay. Repent, acknowledge, repair, and turn to Jesus again. For Peter being what Peter has always been is the loud, outspoken <laughs> spokesman of the group. He says, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. Matter of fact, I'm willing to go to prison with you, even to die with you. <laughs> but Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. Be careful about making promises to God. God knew what he was getting when he saved you. You don't got to pretend to be anything else than that. It's not your commitment to Christ that will sustain your Christian life. It is Christ's commitment to you that will sustain you in the Christian life. Be very careful, beloved brothers and sisters. Be very careful about making promises to God, thinking that that promise to God will sustain you in your moment of temptation. Y'all, I'm speaking from experience. I have said, God, I will never do that again thinking that somehow the conviction of the statement that I'm making is going to sustain me in the moment of temptation. What do you think happened? Did it again and again and again. Because I was trusting in my conviction and my decision to uphold me in the moment of temptation. And that is not how the Christian life works. The Christian life works by hearing the words of Jesus. Peter, Peter, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to try to make it anything other than it is. I'm telling you that you will fall. I'm telling you that you will deny me, but that's okay. Just come back. Family, be free from the facade of righteousness. Be free from feeling like you have to pretend that your conviction is what's going to sustain you. Peter, let me tell you something before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you would deny me three times, you even know me. And Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money or a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now, he said, take your money and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Jesus is not just preparing Peter for his eventual denial. He's also preparing his disciples for his eventual death. 
You see, this is the second time that Jesus is telling his disciples to get ready to go out. The first time earlier in the Gospel of Luke, he said, hey, don't take anything with you. Just rely on the goodness and generosity of the houses that you visit to preach the good news. But now the instructions have changed, hasn't it? He's saying, no, I'm about to send you, but now take some money, take some provision, take a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, you might want to get a piece. That's what the Bible says, y'all. And the question is, what, what he sent out the disciples the first time, and earlier in Luke, told them to take nothing, and now he's not only telling them to take provision, but to take protection. You see, Jesus is not just saying that I'm going to die. He's saying that the world is going to change. You see, Jesus being around as a miracle worker, Jesus being around as a feeder of the people, there were some who didn't believe in Jesus but were benefited by Jesus. There were some who were around the periphery of who he was that tolerated his teaching because he was going to do something amazing. But the Son of Man is about to be delivered up, and he's about to leave this physical world. And he's saying that the attitude of the world is about to shift, that you are about to experience, Christian, the hostility of the world in a different way. He's again preparing us for his death. Verse 39, then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left, left the room upstairs and went, to the usual, went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told him, pray that you will not give in to temptation. Some of you know the story of what happens next. Jesus is praying in the garden, finds his disciples sleeping numerous times, encourages them that can't you just stay awake with me for a little while. And then Judas, who had agreed to sell the Savior for 30 pieces of silver, that's not even a lot of money in those days. And that he was willing to betray Jesus, walks up to the Son of Man, gives him a kiss. And verse 48 says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And so begins Jesus' arrest and interrogation. In verse 54, so they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, he said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. Verse 59, about an hour later, someone else insisted this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter says, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Verse 66. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. And Jesus was led before the high council, and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. And they all shouted. Who shouted? They all shouted, are you claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses? They said, we ourselves heard him say it. 
Family, this is a picture of the complete dismantling of Jesus' disciples. One by one, they would left them. Peter's name is mentioned, and Judas's name is mentioned, but Jesus is in the courtyard facing trial by himself. Where are the other ten? They had all deserted him. Other passages say that some of them, in their urgency to flee, left even their clothes behind and ran through the woods naked because they were that desperate to get away from being caught and in prison. Jesus was a faithful friend and the suffering servant. In this passage, Jesus answers the question for us, does he understand? You see, sometimes I think we read the Bible and we immediately discount its application in our life because, oh, that was them and then. This is here and now. And sometimes we think that we have a Savior who cares about our soul but doesn't really understand our suffering. But Jesus is not just the suffering servant who paid for our sins. He is also the faithful friend who really does understand. Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Have you ever put your trust in someone or something only to have your hopes dashed? I've said it before and I say it again. You have been hurt by the church. I get it. But nobody has been hurt by the church worse than Jesus. Nobody has been hurt by people who claim to follow God more than Jesus. When he was standing trial, he saw his disciples in the audience with their mouths shut and their eyes to the ground, hoping nobody would notice him. If that was me, I might have called their name. Y'all got some questions for me? Ask my boy Mark. Where you, Mark, where you at? <laughs> Ask my boy John. John, where y'all? Y'all ain't gonna leave me up here by myself. But Jesus knew that it, this was part of the prophecy as well. That the lamb would go to slaughter without opening his mouth. That he would suffer in silence the injustices of wicked men. Not just the wicked men pointing the finger, but the wicked men who were silent. At the trial of Jesus. Flip over to John 15, then I'm done. I want you to hear these words in the context of the scene that we just read in Luke 22. John 15, verse 9. I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Family, this passage makes me think about sin a little differently. You see, when we fall, although inevitable, we didn't just break the rule. I believe we break the Father's heart. You see, God doesn't need servants. He's already got the perfect suffering servant in Jesus. 
Jesus, who lived a perfect life that we could never live, died a death of a criminal that we should have died and rose with all power in his hand. God doesn't need servants, but he is looking for friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends when you do what I command. You are my friends when you trust that my will is better than your will. And so I begin to look at sin in my own life as a little bit different. It's not just me breaking a rule, but maybe it's breaking his heart because he once again, is being deserted by those who call him Lord. And it's not Judas, and it's not Peter, it's me. Jesus has modeled what faithfulness looks like. He knew Peter was going to desert him, and yet he washed his feet. He knew Judas would betray him, and yet he washed his feet. He knew the disciples would scatter, and he gave them words of wisdom to encourage them after he is gone. He was the faithful friend until the end, perfectly obeying the will of his father, even crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, if there's a way, God, if there's a way for me to not drink from the cup of your wrath, show me another path except for the cross, God but not my will, but not my will, but your will be done with the prayer of our Savior. Family, Jesus isn't just our Redeemer and Savior. He's also our model for living. And that's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? God, if there's another way except through this way, show me. But God, if this is how you want me to live, not my will, but your will be done. Not my way, not my wisdom, not my priorities, but yours be done in my life. I don't know about y'all. I don't want to just be a good Christian. I want to be a good friend to Jesus because he has been a good friend to me. And that may be weird for, for some of us. That would have sounded weird to me when I first became a believer to think of God as a friend. But some of y'all have lived a little bit of time where you looked around and there wasn't anybody else but him. Some of y'all have lived a little bit of time where nobody would understand but him. Some of us have lived a little bit of time where we didn't see any other way out, any other hope, any other friends except for Jesus. And it was us with the word and with worship singing to the Lord all by ourselves. Maybe some of us have been there and realized that God has been a friend to us. And his call is not for us to be his servants, but to us to be his friends by walking in obedience to his commands. Because just like I thought my dad was being hard on me by the rules of Christ, so sometimes we look at the commands of Jesus and think that he's being hard on us, but maybe he's not trying to take something from us. He's trying to give something to us. Maybe when we restrain our base desires and we flee from temptation, Jesus isn't trying to take joy from our lives, but trying to put joy in our lives. And if we would just be good friends to him, we would trust him. We would obey him. Family, let me challenge you with this, and then I'm done. Would you reposition how you think about sin this week? Not just keeping the rules, not just doing the right thing and staying away from the wrong thing, but would you think about your relationship with God as a friendship with Jesus? And would you this week just try to live as a good friend to a Savior who has been good to you? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.